Amen. So I want to uh, jump right into our lesson today. And so again, if you're watching and joining us from home, we welcome you. I hope that you are uh, checking in with us through either Facebook or our YouTube channel. And, uh, and just again, the, the uh, privilege and, and the opportunity that we have to be able to broadcast this to our people, even though you're stuck at home today, um, it is uh, a wonderful opportunity for us. So I'm so grateful for that. It is a little bit odd, I will be honest, to be able to preach to virtually an empty room. But I do thank, for, thank you guys that are here that give me a few faces in the crowd to at least engage with as I share today's message. And so we are going to continue to march through the book of Revelation, and we are right here in the middle now of the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. We've spent the last two weeks talking about first the letter to the church at Ephesus, which is, is considered the loveless church. And, and Ephesus did some things really well. They, they were contending for the faith. They guarded sound doctrine. They, they called out people who were preaching a false gospel. They called out false prophets and apostles in their church. But yet somewhere along the way, they got so wrapped up and so busy with the work of the ministry and even contending for the faith, which is, again, a good thing that we should all do, somewhere along the way they began to drift away from their personal relationship with the Lord, where they had lost the love that they had at first, I think both for God and also for each other. And, and, and that's where I shared with you guys a couple of weeks ago. We have to have both and. We have to speak the truth, but we do that in love. We, we have to contend for the faith, but we also have to love one another as Christ Jesus has loved us. And so when we feel ourselves beginning to grow cold and calloused and disconnected um, and lack, lacking mercy and compassion, that's a big indicator that somewhere along the way we have abandoned our first love. And the Lord says, repent, come back, remember who I am, remember uh, that I am your supreme love. And if we will just continue to draw from the love of Christ, draw from his love that he pours out into our hearts through that personal vertical relationship we have with him, then his love will spill over into the lives of those around us. And so that's a reminder today that, yes, we need to stand for truth, but we also need to make sure that we prioritize our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ as the most important and essential thing in our life. Then last week we looked at the church at Smyrna, which is Basically, the persecuted church and, and the people, the believers there in Smyrna in John's day, they were enduring, like most of these seven churches in this day, underneath the shadow of the Roman Empire, Caesar worship and pagan idolatry, which was, you know, just immersed in this culture of idolatry. The believers had a very difficult time. And the, and the believers in Smyrna were, poverty, were in poverty. They were basically had been rendered as beggars because they had lost everything for their faith in Jesus Christ. And they were being intensely persecuted by several different groups of people there in Smyrna. But then we also had to bring attention to the fact that, yes, the church at Smyrna is a persecuted church in their day. But we also are experiencing, Christians are experiencing persecution like never before in our day. And the way I read the scripture, guys, it's only going to get worse. And so it was a big wake-up call. And we're starting to see that here in the West, here in the United States of America, that the cancel culture and, and uh, all of the censorship, and, and uh, we're starting to see more and more overt forms of persecution for those who do stand for truth and those who do identify with Jesus Christ as Lord. And so it's going to become increasingly more difficult for believers to stand with Jesus and walk with him and be his witnesses in this generation and in this culture. And so we, we, we had to be reminded last week that persecution is coming. Tribulation is guaranteed. It is promised for the believer. And so the Lord didn't have really anything negative to say to the church at Smyrna. He just basically said, hey, guys, I know your tribulation. I know your persecution. I know that you're bearing up with me and, and you're enduring this for my name's sake. He was basically telling them and encouraging the believers in Smyrna saying, guys, hang in there. Don't give up. Don't lose faith. And so today, we're, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to jump into the next church, the next letter to the seven churches uh, in Revelation, and that is here, the church at Pergamos. And so if you look with me, if you have a, a copy of God's Word with you, or you're looking at the Scriptures with me together, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now, real quick, just a, a brief thing. 
some of your translations or Bibles may say Pergamum with an M, uh, and some may say Pergamos, and, and both translations are, are basically legitimate. There's just a little bit of a variation as to, to which way it's translated in your scripture. It doesn't really matter. So I may say Pergamum, I may say Pergamos with an S. Same church, just a little bit of a different rendering, so don't, don't let that uh, trip you up in any way. So we're going to look here in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12, as we look at the church at Pergamos, which we could call the compromised church, or maybe a better way, I think I eventually look at it as it's become the worldly church. And you're going to see why here in just a minute. And so let's look at Revelation 2, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 to set the context for Jesus' letter to the church and the believers there in Pergamos. He said, and the angel, excuse me, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who has received it. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to commit this time to you. May you speak through me, your servant, according to your word and your will. And may your spirit be the one who counsels and teaches and edifies us through your inspired word. And may it be all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. So here we are, the church at Pergamum or Pergamos. And again, we're calling this the compromised or the compromising church. So there's your map. And we're working our way northward now on the western side of what is modern day Turkey. We see Ephesus was the first church. Uh, there on your map, you see Patmos is the small island where John received the vision and he's banished there during this revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. We went up to number two, which was Sperna. And now if you go a little bit further north, number three, the church is Pergamum or Pergamos. And so that gives you a little bit of historical context. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. You're going to see this, this again, almost every one of these ancient churches is going to have somewhat of a similar ancient architecture. Almost all of them have these stadium-like amphitheaters. And you can see it's a beautiful area that's mountainous. You can see the mountain view in the background, but this is one of the ancient amphitheaters there in Pergamos. And so, again, very typical for that day and age. There's some ancient uh, Greco-Roman uh, remnants of their um, settlement there. And again, the, the, the ruins there have not really been Resettled um, in any significant way, and so uh, they're they're still doing archaeological digs and things like that there in Pergamos. And so the thing that we can remember most about the name Pergamos is that there's a lot of different debates about what does the name really mean. Sometimes these things are difficult to understand or to determine. Uh, one definition says the the word Pergamos means fortified uh, or exalted, and then I've heard others say that you can take the 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 prefix per and gamos, which is marriage, and it's mixed marriage. And so that, that may lend some credence as to why we look at the church at Pergamos as a compromised or a worldly church, because we're going to see eventually that they were beginning to mix themselves with the world in a way that was dishonoring to the Lord. And so that may be a relevant uh, definition for the actual name itself. Uh, Pergamos was the religious center of Asia Minor for centuries, and so... Um, you know, it, it was the, the, if you wanted to go to get all the different forms of pagan idolatry and the temples and things of that nature, uh, Pergamos was the place to go. They emphasized worship of Asclepius, and uh, Asclepius was uh, the Roman god of medicine and healing. 
And there was a school of medicine and sorcery there in Pergamos again. And we're going to talk a little bit more now about who is this Asclepius. And so Asclepius, if you ever see a picture of him, again, he's the Roman god of medicine and healing. And he always was holding a staff with the serpent that's wrapped around the staff. And so this was a very prominent pagan deity that was emphasized and worshipped there in ancient Pergamos. And so here's how they would um, induce um, their, uh, they, they tried to interpret visions and dreams uh, at this school of medicine, practicing the dark arts of Asclepius. And this is how they would do it. They, they had basically witch doctors, or they were called healers, and they would use mind-altering drugs. So they would get you high, or they would give you a hallucinogen, or they would put you to sleep with some type of mind-altering drug. They would try to induce sleep and induce some type of hallucination or dream. And then when you woke up, you would tell them what you saw or what you, you know, experienced, and then they would try to interpret that, and that would be the way that they would supposedly help uh, their patients. And so this is some really dark stuff that's going on here in Pergamos. Um, I think it's interesting because if you've ever seen a caduceus, this is something that you see very prominently in our culture today. If you're familiar with the caduceus, you see it in medical institutions, on hospitals, on the, on the side of the ambulance. You may walk into your doctor's office and you may see a caduceus there. Now, there is a little bit of a difference between this. This is a caduceus. This is the staff of the Greek god Hermes. And so it was a bronze staff with two serpents that went up and down the staff. Uh, the caduceus was more um, associated with Hermes, who was the god of commerce, kind of the god of money. Um, and so there was a little bit of crossover between Asclepius and his staff with one serpent, and then it eventually kind of morphed into the caduceus, which is what you see now in the medical professions even up until our day today. But do you know that there's a deeper origin to this bronze staff with a serpent? And it's found in the book of Numbers. And if you go all the way back to the book of Numbers, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but if you remember... That the Israelites are in the wilderness, they're, they're crumbling and complaining about Moses and why have you led us out to this wilderness just to, to let us die here. We would be better to be, go back to Egypt and all of that. And if you remember the story, it's a bizarre story in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. But the Lord begins to send serpents, venomous snakes, into the congregation of Israel. And they begin biting the people. And they're dying. It's a plague. It's a plague of literal, violent, uh, viperous serpents that are killing the people there. And so the people begin crying out to the Lord. Oh, now, now that they're dying in, in numbers, they're like, oh, Lord, we're sorry. You know, please save us. And we're all dying. And so what does the Lord tell Moses to do? He says, go and make yourself a what? A bronze staff with a serpent and this is bizarre because we really don't understand what's happening. And he said, and you go and you lift the bronze staff with the serpent upon it, and everyone who comes and looks upon the serpent will be what? Will be healed. And they won't die. And that's it. That's all that we know about this really bizarre story in Numbers 21 until we get to the most famous chapter in all the Bible, John 3. And John 3.16, the most famous verse probably in all of the Bible, is preceded by the explanation as to why Moses was instructed to do what he did in the wilderness. Look at what it says. Jesus says this in John 3. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that's that caduceus, that bronze serpent, so must the Son of Man be what? Lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so we see that this bronze serpent was nothing more than a foreshadowing. It was a, it was a symbolic picture, and Moses had to do it exactly as the Lord instructed him. And so what I believe what we would have seen there, if we were there that day with Moses and the children of Israel, they would, he would have lifted up a bronze staff that probably resembled a cross with the bronze serpent which symbolizes sin and judgment. And by looking at the bronze serpent in faith, the people were healed. And he did that according to the pattern that the Lord instructed him because it was a foreshadowing and a symbol of the, res of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ who would be lifted up on a cross so that all would, who would look upon Jesus and believe in him ultimately would be forgiven of their sin and healed. 
and given eternal life. The last that we hear about this bronze serpent, it, it makes its way. It was saved as a relic. Basically, it became a fetish in uh, Israel. And King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 actually has to destroy the bronze serpent. So it had lasted all this time in the kingdom of Judah until the people had begun to worship it as an idol. And so finally, Hezekiah, who was one of the good kings of Judah, he destroys the bronze serpent. So you can see that this, this origin of this uh, caduceus had its uh, beginning way back in the book of Numbers. And of course, the pagans began to take that thing and, and pervert it like all uh, pagan idolatry does. And it became the symbol of the god of uh, Asclepius, who was the god of healing and the god of medicine. All right. Gives you a little bit of background. And so now let's jump right into the text. We have these seven divine, uh, excuse me, design elements of each letter, and we work through these. I try to work through these each time we look at these seven churches. And so we have the name of the church, again, which is Pergamos, the title of Christ, as we're going to look at here in just a second. He usually gives some type of commendation. Hey, they, hey guys, this is what you're doing well. Then he gives them a concern. This is a rebuke. This is, this is what you're, you're doing poorly, and this is what you really need to work on. He also gives them an exhortation. Okay, now this is how you fix it. You repent. Repentance is key in all of these letters. And then he gives a promise to the overcomer, and then he will usually end or wrap the letter up with his um, familiar phrase, he that has an ear, he, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so let's jump into the title of Jesus Christ to the letter to Pergamum. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So for those of you who have studied the Bible for quite some time, you're going to recognize immediately there's something to this idea of the two-edged sword. And so we would jump to um, some scriptures in the New Testament typically, but there's also a very firm foundation about this two-edged sword in the Old Testament. So the first thing that I want to share with you this morning is that the Lord Jesus is coming to judge, and the sword is very much um, emblematic of judgment. He's coming to judge both the living and the dead by the word of his mouth. So let's look at some of these scriptures that helps us understand what does it mean that Jesus is the one who comes with the two-edged sword. You see, God's word cuts both ways. That's what it means that it's two-edged. What, is it, what do I mean by that? God's word cuts both ways. It, it brings everlasting life and, and reconciliation with God to those who believe. But for those who reject Christ and his word, it brings everlasting punishment and God's wrath. It, it heals those who turn to, to the word in faith, but it wounds those who reject the word of God. It saves, but it also kills. It helps, but it also harms. And so all of our life really comes down to what have we done with the word of God? Have we believed and trusted in the good news of the gospel or have we rejected the word of God? Because the word of God cuts both ways. So here in Hebrews 4, it gives us a, a, an answer. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now look at what it says in verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I don't think it could get any clearer. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, guys. And it cuts through all of the veneer that we put up around us. And we're so good at hiding behind our wealth or our uh, outward appearance or uh, whatever it may be, that we, these, these things that we put up around us to try to protect us from really showing vulnerabilities of who we really are. But it says the Word of God cuts through all of that and gets deep into the spirit and the soul of who we really are. And it says basically at the end of our lives, we must give an account to God according to what we have done with His Holy Word. Hebrews 4. Of course, Ephesians 6 tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. We see that in Hebrews chapter 6. 
Now, I'm going to go back to an Old Testament reference, and, and I want to build a little bit of context because I think you have to look at several passages, several verses in uh, this passage to, to give you some context. But let's look at Deuteronomy 32 together. So if you know anything about Deuteronomy 32, it is the Old Testament song of Moses. Now, interestingly enough, when we get to Revelation chapter 15, guess what? We see the, peop- the, the saints in heaven singing the song of Moses. So there's a direct connection here, but the song of Moses is probably the very first place that we get this indication that the Lord is coming to judge with a sword. And so let's look at some of these verses together as we look at Deuteronomy 32. Look at what it says. Again, this is Moses. He's, he's, he gives this in, in a form of a song, but it is very rich in doctrine. He says, vengeance is mine, speaking of the Lord, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip on the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Then he will say, Where are their gods? the rock in which they took refuge, who ate of the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There's that double-edged sword. And he says, and there's none that can deliver out of my hand. Look at verse 40 and 41. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. This is the Lord giving his own testimony. Look at what he says. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and, the, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Now listen, this is graphic language, obviously. And this is a language that is depicting the day of the Lord when Jesus comes with his sword to judge and take vengeance upon the wicked and upon his Enemies, And so we see this playing out in the song of Moses. And there's one more verse. He says, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and he cleanses his people's land. And so the Lord is coming to judge. Look at Isaiah 66, another passage. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment by his what? By his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Guys, these are passages of Scripture that most people are not familiar with because, frankly, they're really difficult. Because it's depicting the Lord Himself coming in judgment with His sword, and He is killing people. He is is inflicting vengeance. He's giving payback to the ungodly and to the wicked. And so we have to be very, very careful not to overlook these passages of Scripture because this is the foundation when Jesus tells the church in Pergamos, hey, I'm the one coming with the two-edged sword out of my mouth. This is something that the church would be familiar with. Oh, that's talking about Deuteronomy 32. That's talking about Isaiah 66. And then, of course, we know at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 19, look at what it says. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called the Word of God. There it is. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You know, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, again, another passage depicting the second coming of Jesus, it says this. It says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, speaking of the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this is Jesus. 
This is the judge. This is the righteous king who is coming back to wage war against the wicked. And so Jesus is setting the context. And if you notice a little bit later in the letter, look at what he says. And we'll we'll touch on it later, but I'll go ahead and mention it here in verse 16. He says, therefore repent, and if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And so the Lord Jesus is basically saying, I don't care if you belong to the church at Pergamos. You may be identifying with me or you may be part of the overall community of believers there, but if you don't repent and show fruits of righteousness by your repentance, I'm going to come and judge you with the word of my mouth. And that should wake us all up, that we must all be able to say that we are not afraid to face the Lord Jesus Christ because we know that we belong to him truly. All right, let's move on. Now, this is, this is where it gets really interesting. So you start reading these letters, and I know this had to jump out to you. When we looked at this letter, look at what the Lord says to the church at Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then later he says, you uh, among you where Satan dwells. So Antipas, the faithful witness, was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, what is this business about Satan's throne? What is this business about where Satan dwells? And so this kind of brings uh, some questions to mind, and I'm going to go ahead and kind of give you my interpretation. And uh, again, I, I, don't, I don't pretend to have all the answers about the book of Revelation, but I'm going to give you my best interpretation about what's being communicated here when it talks about the Satan's throne and where Satan Dwells. And so the first thing that I want to share with you is this. The pagans of ancient Pergamos worshipped at the massive altar of Zeus, okay, which is the Greek equivalent of Baal, also known as Satan. So I do think there is a historical context to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, Satan's throne is here with you in Pergamos. This is where Satan dwells. He, he has concentrated his power and authority for some reason right here in ancient Pergamos. Pergamos. And so let me show you a, a, a picture here. This, this, is a re, well, this is the actual ancient altar of Zeus, and it was, it was reconstructed, and it's now in Germany. And I'm going get, to uh, get into more of that uh, here in just a minute. But as the archaeologists began to excavate ancient Pergamum, they discovered this massive altar. This was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was the crown jewel of the temple complex there in Pergamos. And so this was the massive altar to Zeus. All right, and you can see, I mean, these are people here. This thing, I think, was somewhat to 50 to 60 feet high, and, of course, it would have had all kind of other structures around it. I mean, this thing was massive. And so we need to talk about real quick, who is Zeus? Zeus is the god of thunder. He is the Greek god of the storm. He was known as the chief among all of the gods in the pantheon of gods. He was the god of the heavens, of the storms. He was the god of lightning. He's often depicted holding the lightning bolt. He was to be the ruler. He was the ruler on Mount Olympus. In other words, he was above all the other gods in the Greek pantheon. In, in Roman mythology, he was known as Jupiter. Again, they just changed names, but it's the same god. And there was a Greek myth that Zeus was actually born in Pergamos. It's kind of interesting. Well, what does that have to do with Satan's throne? And what does that have to do with where Satan dwells? Okay, so let's draw this connection. We know there was a temple there, an altar to Zeus. That was was Zeus's throne, okay, where he was worshipped by the ancient people in Pergamum. But there's a connection to the ancient Canaanite god that we know as Baal. You see, long before Zeus was identified by the Greeks as the god of the storm and the chief god of the pantheon. You see, Baal preceded Zeus in ancient Canaanite mythology. And so when the children of Israel enter into the land of promise, as they are tempted to be led astray to worship other gods, who is the primary god that we always see the Israelites going to worship? It's Baal. It's always Baal. And you, you know, you could talk about Jezebel. We'll get into her next week. But Jezebel led the, the northern kingdom into idolatry to worship Baal. Elijah, uh, he, he faces off the prophets of Baal. Famous story there on Mount Carmel. And so you have Baal is just repeatedly comes up in the scripture as being kind of the primary competition that the Lord has with the Israelites is they're always being tempted and led to go worship this other god, Baal. Well, it's interesting to know 
that we need to find out who Baal really is. So again, long before we know Greek mythology and Zeus, guess who Baal was? Baal is a title that means Lord or Lords. He was worshipped as, again, the king of the gods, and he was believed to be the god of the storm, the god who rode the clouds, the god who provided the rain, and he was the god of lightning and of heaven. Again, it's the same god. Zeus is equivalent to Baal. Same god, different name, They just took on different names and characteristics as civilizations and cultures changed. And we see that, all right? Now, what's the connection to Satan? Well, um, again, this is is Jeremiah 19, just to give you an indication. Uh, the, the, The Israelites or Judah chased other gods. They filled the place with the blood of innocence. They built high places to Baal to burn their sons in the fire. They, they uh, burned offerings to Baal. So, I mean, it was all kind of terrible things. They sacrificed their children. They practiced all kind of sexual immorality, worshiping Baal. But then Jesus comes along, and as he's casting out demons in his earthly ministry, look at what happens. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, they're, they're accusing Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub. And you're like, okay, Beelzebub... Baal, are these similar? Actually, they are. And so they call Beelzebub the prince of who? The prince of demons. So it says they're accusing Jesus of being possessed by Baal, Beelzebub, who is the prince of demons, who, and they're accusing him of casting out demons. And look at what Jesus says. He called them and said to them, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it will not Stand. So what's Jesus doing right here? He's equating Satan with who? With Baal. Beelzebub is just a, another name for Baal. So he's saying Baal is who? Satan. We know that Zeus is also the same basic entity as Baal. And so now we go all the way back to the ancient church in Pergamum. And whose altar is there? It's the altar of Zeus, which I do believe is partly what God is talking about when he says that that is where Satan's throne is. So there was something significant about that altar. There was a principality and power. The power of Satan was concentrated in that community at that altar, which is where Satan dwells. And that leads us to the next concept, which is cosmic geography, because that raises a lot of questions, frankly. We have to ask ourselves this. Does that mean that Satan has a locale does he have a headquarters, so to speak, on earth? Well, let's, talk, let's stop and think about that for just a second. Is Satan omnipresent? No. Is Satan omniscient? Absolutely not. And he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. Satan is a created being. He cannot be all places at all time as God can. So that means Satan is limited to one place at one time. Now, he has many other minions and demonic and uh, fallen angels. And, you know, he has his own armies that are working for him. And he has a vast organized system of demonic principalities and powers that are much at work for him all over the world at any given time. But Satan himself is limited to one place at one time. This is what we're talking about. Talk about cosmic Geography. Paul said it this way, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we know that Satan is the ruler of, the, of this world, and he is called the God of this age. But like all the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, his seat and his authority is limited to one place of locality, okay? He cannot be at all places at all times. So should we take that to mean that possibly Satan has concentrated his place and seat of authority in Pergamum? At least in this day and age, during John's day, I think we can say, yes, he, he has and he did. As we see in Daniel chapter 10, look at what it says. This gives us a backdrop into some of the spiritual uh, forces that are at work uh, behind the scenes. Um, he, uh, the, the angel is talking to Gabriel. He says, Do you not know that I've come to you, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and I will go, and behold, the prince of Greece will come, 
And then later he says, no one contends by my side except Michael, your prince. And so this gives us, these are not human princes, these are supernatural princes. And so just to to give you a, a brief little reminder of what we're talking about, every nation and territory on earth is controlled right now by a different supernatural principality or power. And these are not good guys. Are we understanding? So Satan is the god of this age and he is the ruler of this world, but there are other principalities and powers that are in control and oppressing the different nations of the world and they have territory and they fight amongst themselves. Okay, just because they're all bad and they're all, you know, working ultimately for the devil doesn't mean they're not jockeying for position and fighting amongst themselves to try to get themselves in a better position of power. You understand what I'm saying? It's like all the gangsters uh, in the big city, even though they're all bad and they're all working bad things together, they're still fighting amongst themselves to try to figure out who's going to rise to the top. And it's the same thing that's happening here when it comes to cosmic geography. Okay, so let's talk real quickly about this throne. In Revelation 13, we'll get to there many weeks from now, but it says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard and its feet like a bear and its mouth was like a lion. And to it, the dragon gave what? His power, his throne, and great authority. Guys, there's a time coming in the future when the Antichrist, otherwise known as the beast, he will begin to uh, elevate himself as a powerful stakeholder in the Middle East. He will begin to rise to power. He will begin to bring a coalition of nations together. And there's going to come a point in the future when the devil himself is going to give this man, the son of perdition, he's going to give him all of his power and his throne and all of his authority. Okay, I believe that there's something to that. Later in Revelation 17, it says that these kings are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast and they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he's the Lord of lords and king of kings. And so again, we see that there is something going on here. Now, this is a map that I want to remind you about geography. Remember, I just talked to you about geography. Every Territory on earth has a principality or power over it. It's no different than modern-day Turkey. Now, if you see the map, there's Pergamum on the left-hand side. If you're looking at the map here, there's Pergamum. And you see that that is what Jesus says is where Satan's throne is. Now, what's interesting to me is that when you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, I'm not going to go there now, but Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the Old Testament description of the battle of Armageddon. And if you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Antichrist, who is Gog in Ezekiel 38 and 39, he comes from modern-day Turkey. He comes from the land of Meshach and Tubal and Gog of Magog. And he's coming from this geographic territory where Satan's throne is. Very, very fascinating. We'll get more into that a little bit later. Now, i got to share this because this is even more interesting to me. All right, back to the altar of Zeus, remember? So a German engineer and explorer, his name was Karl Heumann, he's excavating ancient Pergamum, and he discovered this altar of Zeus, and he began to take the altar and unearth it stone by stone and piece by piece, and he moved it back. This was in 1864, okay, so pre-1900s. He moved it back to Berlin, to Germany. And there he reassembled it, and they built a museum just for this, and it's still there to this day. And so this altar of Zeus was reassembled in Germany, and then when a particular German leader came on the scene by the name of Adolf Hitler, he um, commissioned his own people to build himself a grandstand Okay, this is Hitler's Zeppelin Tribune Grandstand. I think this is in Nuremberg, Germany. And he said, I want my grandstand to be identical to the altar of what? Zeus. So as Hitler began to come on the scene and, and, and the, the people of Germany began to basically worship him as their, their leader, their Fuhrer, he, he modeled his own grandstand after the very same 
altar of Zeus. Isn't it interesting that it just so happens that during World War II, Hitler, filled with the spirit of Satan, tried to eliminate who? The Jewish people. There is a connection there. You want to take it a step further, look at these two pictures. On the left-hand side is Adolf Hitler, 1940. On the right-hand side is the president or the prime minister, Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey. Isn't it interesting that they look almost eerily similar? I mean, they look like they're almost identical, okay? I don't think this, this has been photoshopped any. You can go look up Erdogan in any, any picture or any uh, online uh, website that you want to. It is eerily familiar how these two guys look the same. Now, here's what's interesting is that Erdogan, who is now rising up where? In Turkey, which just so happens to be where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells, Erdogan is now asking Germany to return the altar of Zeus back to its permanent and, and primary location, which is in Turkey. And, he, and he's, his goal is to have the altar of Zeus back in Turkey by 2023. And he's making negotiations with the German people right now to get this altar back. Now, if you don't think there's anything to that, that's fine. I think there's something very significant to that because my eyes are on Turkey right now because I believe Turkey is the place from which the Antichrist is going to emerge. We don't have time to get into that as much today, but we'll get into that much, much later. So that's, I know that's some very interesting background. I had to spend some time there. So let's, let's jump into the commendation. The Lord says in Revelation 2.13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Again, he says it again. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, Antipas was probably um, a, a, bitch, a bishop or an elder in Pergamum in that day, and, and church tradition says he was, he was martyred for believing uh, and standing firm for his faith in Jesus. But we don't know a whole lot about him, but he was a literal individual in that day. But this is the next thing I want to share with you, is that when we take the name of the Lord, we're claiming him as our Heavenly Father, and we're representing him to the world. Now, this is something that I think that I've, I've just recently discovered, and I want to share with you, because the Lord emphasizes the fact that the believers in Pergamum, they held fast to his name. Now, when we go back to the third commandment, what does the Lord say? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, I grew up believing that this verse meant don't use the names Lord blasphemously as a curse word, right? And I think there is an application to that. I think there's more to this commandment. I think what the Lord is telling us in the third commandment, he's saying this, hey, if you take on my name, it's like a wife taking on her husband's what? Name, now you're one with me, and you represent me, and you bear my name to the rest of the world. And don't take it lightly. Don't enter into this relationship in vain, because if you do, you're going to go out there and put my name to shame, and you're going to disgrace my name, because now you're claiming to represent me, just like a wife and a husband share the very same name, or a child shares the name of his parents. When a child is acting out and, and misrepresenting his family name, that's a problem. He's taking the family name in vain. I believe that's what the Lord is talking about more than anything else in here. Hey guys, when you take on my name, you become a follower of Jesus Christ, don't take that lightly. Don't take that in vain because it's serious and it's a lifelong commitment and you're to represent me to the world. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. So he said, hey, some of you guys, you haven't taken my name in vain. You're, you're, you're representing me well, even in the face of persecution. But I do have this against you. You're, you're dealing with this doctrine called the doctrine of Balaam. He says, there are, there, there are some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And then he says, and then there are some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we, we found them in the, in the church at Ephesus as well. And so what is the big concern there? He says, there are some there who are compromised. Okay. So I don't have time to go into the, all the backdrop and background about what happened with Balaam and Balak. So I'm going to try to 
um, summarize it for you, okay? All right, again, back in the book of Numbers, the Israelites are moving toward the promised land. They ask Balak, who is the king of Moab, they say, hey, can we pass through your land? We don't want anything from you. We just don't want to have to take the long way around, right? Can we, we just want to pass through your land. That's it. We won't drink from your wells. We won't take anything from you. We're going to the promised land. And Balak, who is the king of Moab, says, absolutely not, because he's threatened by them. And so that was a big mistake on his part. So he comes up with the idea that, hey, I'm going to curse the Israelites. So he hires a pagan mercenary, a pagan prophet. He's a sorcerer. His name is Balaam. And he says, hey, Balaam, I want you to curse the Israelites for me, so that they are destroyed. So they'll destroy themselves, right? And so if you know anything about the story, um, Balak hires Balaam. He's a pagan sorcerer. And and the Lord comes to Balaam. He says, hey, you can't curse my people. I'm only going to let you what? I'm only going to let you bless them. And this goes on four times. And Balaam keeps telling the king, look, I'm telling you, you can pay me as much money as you want to pay me, but I can't curse these people because they're God's people. He forbids it. I can only bless them. So every time he's paid to curse them, he ends up blessing them. And the king, Balak, just gets frustrated. And obviously he just sends uh, Balaam away. And we think that that's the end of the story. But Balaam taught Balak a different way to destroy God's people. So what did he do? Well... He told uh, Balak, the king, he said, hey, I want you to send your best-looking ladies out there and let them dress seductively. And you go out there and you entice and seduce the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, to come and take them to be your wives. And when they do that, they begin to practice all this pagan idolatry. They begin to practice sexual immorality. They begin making sacrifices to demon gods. And as they did that, guess what the Lord did? He sent a plague on the Israelites and wiped out thousands of people. And and if it weren't for Phineas to stop the plague, I think they all would have perished because this is a different and alternative way that Balaam taught the king of Balak to seduce the people of Israel. And so we see this happening in Numbers 25. We see this happening in Psalm 106. Let me give you my last uh, scripture here from this passage. It says, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came, came, came upon them in the congregation of the Lord. So what is this, what is this way of Balaam? Okay, well, what's the error of Balaam? All right, there's, there's three different passages that we find in the, in the New Testament that touches on this uh, Old Testament pattern. And again, I encourage you guys to go back and read Numbers 25. And uh, uh, it's a very, very fascinating passage. But we see it here in 2 Peter 2. Look at what it says. He sa- he's talking about false teachers. He says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They're accursed children. They forsake the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. And of course, y'all know the story where the donkey speaks to Balaam. Uh, We don't have to get into that now. So that's Peter. Now look at what Jude says. Jude says, Woe to them, again, false prophets, who walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error in Korah's rebellion. Rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Big, big indication right there of what's happening. Waterless clouds swept away by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead. And unrooted. So what, what is the way of Balaam? What is the error of Balaam? This is it in a nutshell. The doctrine of Balaam produces greedy leaders who take advantage of other people for selfish gain and who compromise holiness for sexual indulgence. Guys, this is what's happening in our churches today. I know that we, we think that the church is great and the church is this beautiful spotless bride and that we don't have any, any cleaning up to do. Guys, listen, the church is pretty dirty right now especially here in the West. The Western culture has been uh, basically consumed with this spirit and the doctrine of Balaam. There are greedy leaders who are taking advantage of their people in order to selfishly gain for themselves 
and then they're compromising holiness. And these things always seem to go together. There's usually materialistic greed involved where you got people who are taking advantage of people financially, and then it usually also involves sexual immorality. This is what's happening when we talk about the way or the error of Balaam. Sinful, indulgent leaders abusing power, compromising in sexual immorality, greedy men who peddle the gospel to take advantage of other people. What does the Lord say? He says, guys, you got to repent. The people in the church at Pergamum, you must repent of this way, this error, because it's leading you and others into destruction. Look at what he says. Therefore, if not, I will come to you soon. Repent. But if you do not, I will come to you and war against them. Notice what he says. I'm warring against them. Who? The ones in the church who are leading the other people astray. The false teachers. The ones who are seducing others for financial greed and for sexual immorality. He says, listen, if you don't, I'm going to war against you. So how do, we, how do we wrap all this together? Okay, how, do we, how do we kind of bring all of this together when we know what was happening in the days of Pergamum, where Satan dwells and his throne is, where, where there are false teachers who are leading people astray to compromise? Okay. Now we see from the prophetic profile of the last generation, guys, I think this is where we see. We see that there's a compromised church today. There is a church, a worldly church, that emphasizes materialism and sensuality. And it emphasizes outer appearance and image more than it emphasizes the doctrine and substance of what we're, what we're to be about. There is a perverted, worldly church that has to give an account to the Lord. Guys, we're called to be witnesses for Christ in the world, but not to be what? Of the world. Do not be conformed to this world. We are not of the world just as Jesus is not of the world. You see, he continues to tell us to be sanctified. He says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. There is no place for us to try to appeal to the world, guys. If we're trying to appeal to the world and we're trying to make ourselves look good to the world and compromise our holiness just simply to reach other people in the world, guys, we're doing nothing but bringing destruction and judgment upon ourselves. Do not love the world or the things of the world. I could go on and on and on. Now, this has a lot to do with prosperity gospel. And I'm going I'm to touch more on this when we get to the church at Laodicea because it's really the church that I believe represents the, the movement today of the prosperity gospel. So I'm not going to spend much time there. But more than anything, I think what we're looking at here is the plague of sexual immorality in the church. The plague of sexual immorality in the church. Look at what Paul says. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that people who have stumbled sexually are are lost forever? No, that means people who are practicing sexual immorality have unchecked sin in their life, who have embraced a lifestyle of sexual immorality, and there's no conviction and no repentance for that. He's saying there's danger for you because those kind of people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So guys, I want to bring... um, Attention to one, one thing before I wrap up, because I know I'm trying to be, be uh, good with our time today. But, but I, I think there's something very relevant today, and I'll just bring you three examples of what we're dealing with today. All right, number one, talking about this spirit, this error of Balaam, leading people into sexual immorality. Jerry Falwell, Jr., I graduated from Liberty University Online. It was a great online program. I got my Master's of Divinity through Liberty Online. It's a great college and university. But their president, Jerry Falwell Jr., the son of Jerry Falwell, if you found out anything last year about what happened, he got caught up in a sexual scandal, and he had to what? He had to step down and resign. Leading one of the biggest Christian universities in in the country, their, their number one guy, he got caught up in sexual immorality. 
Then there's Carl Lentz. And again, I'm not calling these guys out to, 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 to degrade them in any way because, again, this could happen to any of us if we're not uh, guarded and, and making sure that we're walking faithfully with the Lord. But what I am doing is showing you how this spirit of Balaam and this sexual, the problem of sexual immorality is in the church today. Okay, so Jerry Falwell Jr., he just recently fell, lost everything because of this. There's a guy named Carl Lentz who was the pastor of Hillsong in New York. Big campus up there. They had all the flashy lights and show. They had the best worship team in New York. Big, fast-growing church in New York. Carl Lentz just had to resign and was fired by Hillsong for the very same thing. Sexual immorality. Now he's been disqualified as a pastor. And then most recently, the one I think shocked many people was Ravi Zacharias. We think about a man like Ravi Zacharias, who I'm going to be honest with you, was was one of the, the heroes of apologetics faith. I mean, I, I read his books. I, I listened to his teachings. He was one of the most renowned uh, teachers in Christian faith, going all over the world, sharing the gospel, defending the faith. And now we learn, after, he's, after he died this past year, we learned that he had a lifestyle of all kind of in, inappropriate sexual behavior in his ministry. Not just once, not just twice, but I'm talking about a pattern for years and years and years where he was taking advantage of women and acting inappropriately with sexual immorality. And you step back and you're like, wow, how could this happen? Guys, it's the same thing that was happening at the church at Pergamos. It's the same thing the Lord was reminding and warning the church about. He says, listen, you have allowed these people to infiltrate your church and you have not been diligent to get them out of there and to stand for truth and to eliminate this false spirit of Balaam and to allow sensuality and sex appeal and image and all of this materialism to infiltrate our church and so that the church ends up becoming more like the world instead of standing out and being set apart from the world. And that's what's happening right now. Especially where? Right here in the United States of America. And guys, I'm telling you, it is a problem. Not to mention, I could go on and on and on about the the plague of pornography that has gripped the church in this culture as well. Where pastors and leaders and everyday church members in the church are being oppressed and completely um, addicted. Lifestyles of deep, dark addiction to pornography. Guys, this is the same thing that Jesus is warning us about. And so what do we say? I'm going to ask our praise team to come on back up because we got one more song to sing. He says, hey, guys, if you got ears to hear, you you better listen up. You better hear. Because the same problem that the church at Pergamum was dealing with, the worldly church, the compromised church, whatever you want to call it, is the same problem that our churches today, especially right here in the West in the United States of America, are dealing with today. So look at what he says. Hey, whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what are we talking about here? Hidden manna. Well, the first thing is that Jesus is the bread of life. So Jesus is saying, hey, if you overcome and you conquer and you remain faithful, guess what? You get me. I am the bread of life, okay? The hidden manna that came down out of heaven to feed the Israelites. There's another application to this that I'll get into later, but um, I think that's the primary application. Jesus is like, hey, guys, you get me. I'm the bread of life. Then he goes on and he says, I'm going to give you a white stone. What is this all about? The best thing that we understand about the white stone is that it it wasn't a a big rock. It wasn't a a massive boulder. It was a little pebble. This word stone is a pebble. And it would have your name on it. And in the days of John, in the days of the church at Pergamos, this stone gave you access. It allowed you to vote. You would have your name on this stone. It was kind of like your certificate. It was kind of like your validation uh, card. It was kind of like your voter registration card or maybe like a ticket to get into uh, the Colosseum or something like that. So you would have this stone, this pebble, and it would have your name written on it, and it gave you entrance into whatever event that you were trying to go to. I believe what the Lord is saying here is that for those who overcome and conquer, I'm going to give you your own white stone and you will have entrance into the new Jerusalem, into my kingdom. This is going to be your entry ticket, basically. I believe that every believer is going to receive a white stone with his name on it. And it's going to be a new name 
which is what Isaiah says, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a what? A new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Amen. So how are we going to put all this into action? Number one, we need to be awakened and reminded of the spiritual battle that is raging around us. The principalities and powers of darkness in heavenly places, guys, they are raging up. They are ramping up their influence and their power and their control and their um, demonic assault on God's people because they know their time is what? Their time. So we gotta, we got to begin to wage spiritual warfare with the weapons that God has given us, which is the Word of God, which is prayer, which is accountability and encouragement and all the things that we need from one another during this time of spiritual warfare. Number two, guys, we've got to repent of our worldliness and the sexual immorality that has infiltrated the church. It is affecting many of us. Many of us have been completely rendered useless for the kingdom because we're in bondage to sexual immorality. The Lord is calling us to repent, turn away from this lifestyle. And then he's telling us to do this. We better not take the name of the Lord in vain. Hold fast. If you've taken the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you represent him now and he is yours and you are his and you're one of God's children, we must not take that lightly. We must take that call seriously, knowing that we represent Jesus Christ to the rest of the world and we should not take his name in vain. Now I know that was a lot of information and I know that was very, very heavy, but you guys can see as well as I can that these letters to the seven churches, they weren't just written for the churches in that day. They were written for the church in the last generation. We're living in it right now. We are experiencing the primary application of what these churches were going through right now in this generation and it could never be more relevant than it is today. Let me pray for us and then we're going to sing one more song. And I hope and pray that this message has encouraged you and also led you to a deeper level of repentance as we seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for being faithful. I want to thank you for the promise to the overcomer, Lord, that you will provide everything that we need. Just as you provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness when they did not have bread to eat or water to drink, you poured forth water from the rock. You gave them manna from heaven to feed them every single day. You provided and took care of them, Lord, and that's the same God that we serve today. Father, I pray that our churches would repent and confess of the sins of sexual immorality and greediness and materialism and sensuality and seduction. All of the things that we're seeing in our church, God, may we put those away and turn back to you in faithfulness and holiness. And Father, may we never take your name in vain, but only represent you well, even until the end. Father, have mercy upon us, your people. And all these things I do pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.